Welcome to the Econ Minute Podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. Along the way, you'll discover that this podcast is about more than economics, and it's also more than a minute. I'm Eric Fruits. I am an economist based in Portland, Oregon. My day job is in economic consulting, where I serve as an expert witness in litigation. I'm also an adjunct professor, where adjunct is just a fancy way of saying part-time. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. That's econminute, all one word, dot com. It has daily updates, or almost daily updates. You can contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. This week's podcast looks at the intersection of the ride-sharing service Uber, criminal background checks, streetcars, and transportation safety. Yes, they are all related. Then we turn to education and economic development and whether education passes a controversial smell test related to economic development. Welcome aboard. This is the Econ Minute Podcast. Portland is a contradiction wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. We are transportation innovators. We began the streetcar revival that has infected cities throughout the U.S., but we are still not allowed to pump our own gas. We have mandatory minimum sentences for certain crimes, yet we also have medical marijuana, and will soon have recreational marijuana. And, if the legislature has its way, it will be illegal for employers to ask job applicants if they've ever been convicted of a crime. We are the high-tech hub, the self-proclaimed home of the Silicon Forest. We bent over backwards to get Google Fiber to come to our city, although that failed. But, until last week, we couldn't use Uber or Lyft ride-sharing services because several city commissioners admitted that they didn't understand the technology and one of the city commissioners still doesn't have a smartphone. All of these contradictions played out in the small space of one week. Last week, in fact. Monday of last week, I applied to be an Uber driver. I view it as something fun, something that can make me a little bit of money, and also one of the best expressions of the freedom of the market. So I applied last week to be an Uber driver. The first step was to submit my background check. I also had to submit a copy of my driver's license, my vehicle registration, my insurance information, and my City of Portland business license. Oh, and I had to get my vehicle inspected to make sure it was safe and that there was no visible damage. Now, the background check is important, or so it seems, because one of the city commissioners explained that her fear of allowing Uber to operate in the city, she remarked that her mother always told her not to take a ride from a stranger. And yes, she really did say that. Now, the car inspection was a snap. In fact, Uber paid for it. It was less than 30 minutes, and it was free. But the background check was also the biggest bottleneck. It turns out that the third-party vendor Uber uses has a bit of a backlog because so many people are applying to be Uber drivers. Nevertheless, less than a week later, just after noon on Friday, I received a text, yes, a text, from Uber saying that I was approved to be a driver. Fifteen minutes later, I picked up my first fare, which I detail on the Econ Minute blog. Now, fast forward. That same day, a community activist, who happened to be one of my former students at Portland State University, was thrown off of the Portland streetcar for complaining that a vent inside the streetcar was leaking water and smelled of smoke. Now, after complaining a few more times, the rider, my former student, was thrown off of the streetcar for making a disturbance, and he was issued a citation. Streetcar management dismissed the complaint, and this is what's really wild. They explained that the leak was due to what they called an aging car, and they said that this aging car gets smoky and leaks when it's hot outside. 
but the management said that even the smoky, leaky car was safe to ride in. Now keep in mind, it wasn't that old a car. The oldest car in Portland's streetcar fleet is about 15 years old. Also keep in mind that it wasn't that hot outside. The high that day was 73 degrees. Now let's get to the contradictions. We have a city commissioner who is afraid that Uber drivers might commit some sort of violence against their passengers. Which means that maybe we should have a background check. At the same time, the city commission and state legislature are pushing what they call ban-the-box laws that would make it illegal for a business like Uber to ask whether their drivers have ever been convicted of a crime. We have rules that require all rideshare cars to pass a safety inspection. Yet the city itself runs streetcars that would fail the same sort of inspection that Uber cars are subjected to. And last, we have a city in which African Americans complain that they can't get a cab and get kicked off the streetcar. Yet my first two Uber customers were young African American men. And that, my friends, is the contradiction wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma that is Portland, Oregon. Economic growth is probably the single most studied topic in economics. Studying economic development dates all the way back at least as far as Adam Smith's 1776 book. It was called An Inquiry into the Nature and Causes of the Wealth of Nations. We know today it's just the wealth of nations. Now, after almost 250 years of study, you'd think that we as economists would have the answer to what causes the wealth of nations. but. Alas, as we've mentioned before, science is never settled, so economists keep coming up with new answers. For example, the idea of micro-lending and microfinance has been all the rage lately, especially after Mohamed Yunus was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in microcredit. But the real question is, do such little things actually matter? Harvard development professor Lant Pritchett describes a eureka moment he had when he realized that maybe micro-efforts produce only micro results. Pritchett describes a time that he was in West Bengal with the World Bank team researching a program that built and financed women's self-help groups as a means of increasing these women's productivities and income. At one point, one of the women asked, you're all from countries that are so much richer and doing so much better than our country. So that means your country's women's self-help groups must also be so much better. Tell us, in your country, how do your women's self-help groups work? And that's when it hit him. He says he looked all around and none of them, none of these people, people from the US, UK, Germany, New Zealand, none of them had ever heard of a women's self-help group in their own countries. And they had no idea how their countries developed in the absence of having such women's self-help groups. And so if you think about that, you had a bunch of first world experts telling a bunch of women in a third world country that micro-lending is somehow a path to economic development. But these experts don't know of any such lending in their own countries. So if the US, the UK, Germany, New Zealand, and other developed countries can advance so far without such micro-lending programs, why would anyone expect micro-lending to be the path to economic growth for a developing country? And so that led Pritchett to what I call an aha moment that led him to develop what he calls a smell test. Four simple tests to determine what is important to development. In other words, he thinks that it has to be, if you have big changes in development, you have to have big differences. 
The first of the four-part smell test is that he says that more developed countries must have more of what he calls X, more of factor X. That could be something like natural resources, access to warm water ports, educational attainment. Those countries have more de- have more access, have more of this X, this factor X, than less developed countries. That was number one. Number two, he says that developed countries must have more X of this factor, whatever it was, than when they were less developed. In other words, somehow or another, they may have unlocked some potential. So, for example, we can think maybe in the U.S. when we turned to fracking and we were able to unlock more energy potential. The third uh, part of the smell test is he says that recent development successes must have more of this factor X than development failures. And the fourth one is, is that countries that are developing rapidly must have more rapid growth of factor X, whatever it is, than those that are developing slowly. Now, economist Paul Romer jumped on this observation and decided to test it out. He applied the smell test to urbanization, and he concludes that urbanization, in other words, people moving to cities, passes the smell test. And that means that urbanization is important to economic development, according to this test. Here at Econ Minute, we decided to perform our own smell test on education and economic development. We chose education because there's very little debate about the fact that greater educational achievement is associated with better economic growth. And because it's relatively uncontroversial, it's also a pretty good test of Pritchett's smell test. We use data from the World Bank on education and per-person gross national income, what we used to call GDP, and see the relationship between secondary education completion, that's like high school education completion, and per capita GDP. You can see the details of the data on the blog or get it from the World Bank. The data itself is less important than what we found. And we did the same sort of analysis that Romer did, and we found the same sort of results. We find that that where you have greater educational completion, you tend to see greater uh, per capita growth in gross national product or gross national income. Now, one of the problems we have with this study is that you're going to hear people say, well, wait, correlation is not causation. Just because two things are related doesn't mean that one is causing the other. And that's true. A lot of times we think that education causes economic development, but one can make a really good argument that maybe it goes the other way around. Indeed, one can make a very good argument that improving incomes causes greater educational attainment rather than the other way around. As incomes improve, a family can afford the time and money it takes to better educate their children. Also, as a country's national income improves, greater resources can be devoted toward public education, meaning then that as incomes are growing, educational attainment increases. And there could be something where they're both playing off of each other and you have a self-reinforcing effect. Regardless of the whole argument whether causation and correlation are related, this exercise was not meant to end a debate, but it's really to start a conversation about what matters in economic development and how to measure it. And Pritchard makes an invaluable step in that direction. Thanks for listening to the Econ Minute Podcast, where we try to bring the real world to economics and some economics to the real world. I hope you enjoyed it. Please visit the Econ Minute blog at econminute.com. That's Econ Minute as all one word, econminute.com. Has almost daily updates. You can contact me through the blog or just email info at econminute.com. Drop in next week for the next Econ Minute podcast.